Well, welcome. Today, the data privacy detective turns the spotlight on cybercrime. We're going to explore digital forensics with Bill Corbett, who began his cybersecurity career in the U.S. military. Bill molded his government training and tradecraft within intelligence operations, counterespionage, and counterintelligence into building digital forensics and incident response teams from scratch for multiple Fortune 100 companies. Bill, thanks for joining us today and welcome. No, thank you, Joe. I really appreciate the opportunity. Now, Bill, you're a vice president of Intersec Worldwide, and that's that's a U.S.-based team of cybersecurity experts established in 2009. And your team consists of former, former U.S. federal agents in cybersecurity uh, who've worked on some of the largest security breaches in the world. And uh, Intersec Worldwide has been recently named a 2021 top digital forensics and incident response firm by Enterprise Security Magazine. So congratulations. Bill, let's get started now. What's the state of cybercrime today? Very profitable. Very uh, profitable. Cyber <laughs> yeah. Cybercrime would go away if there wasn't any money to make. So currently it's very profitable, especially with the whole ransomware outbreaks and, and the intrusions dealing with ransomware and the data it, it inherently encrypts. So you're so we're reading it in the headlines of, of the newspapers and television, but uh, is, is ransomware the, the prominent uh, type of incidents your team faces today? And are there others that uh, the listeners should know about? So ransomware is an aspect. Um, typically, before the ransomware launches, uh, there is a contributing element to that ransomware launch. And that contributing element can be anything from an open RDP session on the internet to um, a user downloading a malicious email attachment or maybe even clicking on a, a bad malicious um, website link, uh, either through email or just browsing the internet. There has to be a start to the process. And it's often it's human error. It's somebody being fished or spearfished and then the, the malware gets in the system. Correct. The human element uh, is an aspect of cybersecurity that is, is very, very hard to uh, to effectively educate. Now, how who are these criminals, uh, and, and 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 can you identify them? You know, with blockchain payments and encryption and other devices, they certainly try to escape detection. Can you determine who's committing cybercrime? So the cyber criminals are broad spectrum. Um, it could be a small group or faction, all the way up to a, a large, what we call a cybercrime cartel. Um, their cybercrime cartels are very well organized, uh, very professional, very, very smart people. Um, I often want to sit on the sit on the sidelines and watch them work and learn how they think. Um, but the ones that I have approached are very adverse to that. Um, they do target uh, very consciously. Um, they do all their research. They'll research executive social media profiles. They'll look at your public financial filings. Um, they'll get an idea of where you're centralized uh, in, in, in the world as far as where your computers are located. Then they do a lot of research too about where your main headquarters employees are, what, what type of IT staff you have. 
and then they start the targeting process once they get all the background information. So they're, by and large, they're very smart. And where do they live? Where are they from? What are the havens that they use to uh, to operate? Can you sketch that for us? Well, a lot of them are not in the United States, that's for sure. Uh, so they'll haven typically in countries that are friendly uh, to that type of activity or uh, ignorant to that type of activity. Um, it's very difficult to track them back through their anonymizing proxies, um, especially if they if they do a bait program where they, they just send you a malicious email document. Now you're going to be downloading the ransomware and you think it's a, a valid attachment to the email. Um, you'll find a lot of them are uh, in European countries, uh, uh, former uh, Soviet Union countries, China, North Korea uh, are some of the hotbeds uh, of this type of activity. But do we know, Bill, are they operating with the support of government or at least the acquiescence of government or, or do they take steps as far as you know to uh, you know, evade even their own country's uh, government officials? So it's a, a good question. Um, governments like to use the term plausible deniability. Um, and whether that country has come out and officially worked with these crime cartels, every country has denied it, uh, including the United States. So it's up to our intelligence channels uh, within the US government to identify that relationship between the crime cartel and the government they believe has contracted with or is working with that particular crime cartel. Now, of course, you've seen the news and everybody in the news says, we have not broken into any computer systems. And what they're saying is their military component, their military organization hasn't broken into any of uh, any computer system or ransomware of any computer system. But they're not coming out in a clear statement and saying, nor have we contracted with or are we working with any crime cartel to do that nefarious action. Right. And in terms of law, there's no international police force. Uh, we were in a nationalistic world and Russia, China, India, uh, most of East Asia uh, are not uh, members of the Budapest Convention, which has been around since 2004. We have 66 uh, parties to the treaty and other 11 states that have signed up for it. But those major uh, jurisdictions uh, uh, just have not uh, uh, joined the convention. So uh, can you get cooperation of those uh, institutions to uh, when you spot someone in, 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 uh, in one of them? Do the governments cooperate? Well, governments typically cooperate when there isn't a profitability model and the political model is so sensitive, they have no other option but to cooperate. And right now, the political environment is not very sensitive at all. It's very lukewarm at best. And until that, until that atmosphere around the politics on, are you going to cooperate with us in getting rid of these cyber criminals? gets so hot and in everybody's public eye. And when I say everybody's public eye, you have to understand if in, in I'll take India as an example, if in India, it's not a lead news story, if it's not in the papers, if the, the citizenry is not talking about it, their political officials don't really care what's being broadcast in the United States. 
They only care about their political environment. So unless it's hot in their political environment, they're not going to be too motivated. Well, given that uh, you can't uh, just uh, file a lawsuit and have it enforced and uh, have these people arrested, uh, I think that's what we're learning. Uh, what, what do you advise companies to do first uh, for prevention? What, what, what's an effective way to, uh, uh, to limit the risk? Uh, what, what does your team advise? Probably the easiest thing they can do is also the hardest thing they can do, and that is patch your systems. Predominantly, if you have outdated end-of-life, end-of-service computer systems, you are a target, period. And then lately with all the, the, you know, the Microsoft credit vulnerabilities that are out there, there are patches that are being fed. You need to evaluate those patches, work with your operations team, and figure out when can we get up to date in our patching? That's probably the first step. The second step is we have to eliminate entry vectors. So work with your cognizant security representative. Get pen testing done on your both external face and, and your internal face. And then look at your educational programs inside your company. Are you teaching your employees? Are you transferring that knowledge to your actual employee of, this is a good email, this is a bad email, and here's how you tell. And are they aware of where, they're, where it's safe to browse the internet, where it's not? The other thing you can teach your employees is when you issue them a corporate laptop, they need to be reminded that's a company asset. It's not your personal computer. Don't treat it that way. Treat it with the respect and the professionalism of a corporate asset like a car company car you wouldn't take it to the drag races you might take your personal car to the drag races don't take the company car to the drag races that's abuse so don't give it to your kids cruise the internet play games on don't don't go out there you know shopping on your personal on your work laptop or your work pc treat it as a company asset all great and advice your, your personal asset do whatever you want to do on your home systems very good, uh, very good advice. Uh, you know, let me let me move to another topic. Uh, ransomware is certainly in the headlines, and uh, the thought is, if you pay the ransom, you get your data back, and then the system operates again. But there are reports that uh, many of these ransomware attackers are exfiltrating the data and then selling the data uh, on the dark web or otherwise. Uh, do we know that whether this is happening? And can we tell whether this is happening? So, um, okay, that's three parts to the question. Let's see, answer one at a time here. Can we tell this is happening? Within that environment, you should be able to tell based on your current security architecture that there is data exits because you can see the data spikes like in the edge firewall. And that's part of what your team does is digital forensics. So you, you, you can spot that and advise a company whether there's a data breach on top of a ransomware problem. Right, by the time we're involved, that now becomes what we call an artifact. In other words, it's historical. But your operations team should be looking for these data spikes and realize, okay, we have data going out so into this IP. Is it a valid IP? No, it's not. Why do we send data out there? What complicates the issue is a lot of companies allow, for instance, 443, which is a secure channel, out there. 
And the bad guys know it, so they'll encrypt their data, send it across that channel. And unless you have a sub-CA in your firewall that allows you to decrypt that traffic, analyze it, and see if it is data before you allow it to go out, you're allowing that traffic to go out. Now, we get, for instance, sometimes if we're lucky, we get the PCAPs, and the customers ask us to, to look at the packet capture. Well, we can't because it's encrypted. We see a lot of encrypted gobbledygook. Well, okay, it's encrypted. Well, is it data? Now we have to go back through their environment forensically, establish the connection sequences and timing events to say reasonably this system was communicating out. This system has data on it. Therefore, it's a good, reasonable assumption. Data flew across that channel. And now so you almost any, just says, yeah, almost yeah, any ransomware attack you're telling us, Bill, is likely to be and should be treated as a data breach, although there may be a way to determine whether that happened. Would that be accurate? Yes. Um, ransomware has evolved, and it will continue to evolve. Uh, so phase one of ransomware was they just encrypted the systems. Uh, it was a lot safer. They didn't have to break into the system to expel the data. They just encrypted it, and you have to pay to get it decrypted. Well, people stopped paying. So what do they do? They encrypt and they expel now. So you might not want to pay the ransom to decrypt your systems. You might want to build it for backup, hope the ransomware is not on your backups. But now they hold your data ransom. So you'll get a ransom demand through email. And they'll say, if you don't pay it, we'll post it on the, the internet for, for sale or post it on the dark web for sale. So it's sort of uh, two levels of, uh, of ransom uh, that can be in play. Exactly. Well, let me let me ask you a different question. Uh, sh should uh, countries that uh, care about this stuff uh, just pass a law that say it's illegal to pay a ransom? What do you think of that? Well, the United States actually does have some laws that provide legal guidance around paying a ransom. And the concern in the U.S. government is if you pay a ransom, now that ransom, the Bitcoin, for instance, is in is being used or could be used to support terrorist organizations you as a corporate entity have broken a federal law that's right you and uh, you know with blockchain uh, who who knows for sure who who, who you're paying right well, well with bitcoin the blockchain is open you can see what account those bitcoins go to now whether you can back out of that account who actually owns that is difficult if not impossible but then where it goes from that initial payment account out from there is makes it more difficult. So each hop, it gets difficult, if not impossible, to figure out how many hops out did that Bitcoin actually transfer. And of course, every hop, they're going to take their own cuts. It's kind of like the mob. Okay, you want me to launder a million dollars, I'm going to take a 35% cut of the million before I, I launder it and wash you back good money. It's the same type of concept. Let me let me lob to you one last question here, Bill. Uh, what would it take to really shut down this type of of, of cybercrime? Is there a hope that uh, this might end someday? As long as cybercrime is profitable, you'll never shut it down. Um, it'll it'll evolve. So we watch the evolution come from actually breaking into networks, uh, compromising a user's account, and then moving the data out. Now we watch Trojans evolve and allow remote access into the environment. We watch Trojans being used to bring in the ransomware. We watch ransomware evolve from ransomware, now data exfiltration. So you have, like you were saying earlier, you have two venues of extortion. You have the ransom 
you have the encrypted systems, which they also are holding your data. So cybercrime is like any crime. As long as it's profitable, you will continue to have it. It's just evolving. It's changing. And what the next iteration of is something we're taking a look at. It's okay. Companies are going to start watching to see if there's data spikes. They're going to start terminating the data spikes. Well, you're not getting a complete data exfil. You're only getting partial data. Okay, well, what's the next What's the next step? What's the next step for the evolution of cybercrime? Is it going to be ransomware with data exfil combined with account exfiltration and reenumeration? I mean, there's so much more that could be in the future as this model evolves. But if it's profitable, we're going to have the cybercrime. Right, Bill. It's uh, if you if you were asked when uh, when should you get a call? When should Intersect Worldwide get a call? You probably get them. Uh, when there's an incident, but uh, what would the right answer be? When when should uh, a business concerned about this uh, contact us. you or somebody in this field? Yeah, call us immediately. We have companies that some do call us immediately. But we've had companies call us a month or two months out. The longer you wait, the more spoilage you have to deal with on, as far as the forensic artifacts. So the forensic artifacts are key. You can think of it like footprints in the sand. If we get called immediately when there's a footprint in the sand, we can now go in and start taking a look and determine what that footprint was a relationship to. But if we call us a month later, that footprint now looks like a divot at a golf course. It's very difficult the longer you wait for us to come in and do our job. If you call us as soon as you can, you know, the best call I've, I ever get is when they're in, right in the middle of a live a firefight. They call us up, we actively engage, we get the teams organized. It's, it's a very resource intensive period. You know, we, we heard of the pipeline break and, and I posted this on my LinkedIn, my heart goes out to the IT team because I know at that point, that team is now working 16, 18, 20 hour days until they get relief and support. And they're at home, so they have family, they have to take into consideration kids and daycare and schools. You know, so the companies need to realize when this event takes place, the, the IT workday is typically 10, 10 hour days anyway, but that IT workday now gets exorbitantly expanded and you're putting an immense amount of load and pressure on your IT team and they need support and just for pure professionalism and kindness to your IT team, pick up the phone and ask for help. Well, Bill, great advice on how to prevent this thing, which you can't, uh, no one can promise. Uh, the point is to minimize the risk and then uh, to deal with it immediately if, if a terrible thing happens like this. Bill, thanks so much today for this fascinating tour to the dark side of the digital age. And remember, listeners, as I always sign off, protecting your personal data privacy begins with you.